This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 414 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dave Castro. Now, many of you will probably recognize Dave from the CrossFit Games and the CrossFit community, but lesser known, he was also a Navy SEAL at the highest level and for a brief moment, the CEO of CrossFit. So I really wanted to discuss with him the tactical side through the lens of the military, through first responders. So we discuss a host of topics from entry standards, maintaining tactical fitness, the importance of hero wads, competitive shooting, martial arts, and so much more. Now, I do want to note the first few minutes we had a slight audio issue, which was very quickly remedied, and the rest of the conversation is crystal clear. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback. I truly love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Dave Castro. Enjoy.
Dave, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? Uh, I'm in California. I live, uh, I live near about an hour south of San Jose. And I'm at actually the, uh, the ranch I grew up on, which also is the home of the CrossFit Games, the first three CrossFit Games. And actually this year, we just we had this year's CrossFit Games here too because of uh, all the COVID issues. Beautiful. Was it, despite the the bad environment around why it was there, was it kind of cool to kind of go back to the roots and have it there this last year? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it was a, it was a maybe once in a lifetime opportunity at this stage, and I only say that because the the notion of the CrossFit Games being held in its entirety at um, in Aromas back at the ranch is is frankly impossible because we we won't run the games anymore without fans and and large numbers of fans but this environment created a uh, predicament where it wasn't an impossibility it was actually a great solution to the problem to bring it back here because we couldn't have fans so like you know as bad as everything's been with covid it was it caused this unique environment to where we could have the games here and it made complete sense Beautiful. Well, I love to walk people through chronologically. So let's start at the very beginning. So I don't know if a lot of people know about your backstory. So where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born uh, in San Jose, California. And I grew up there until uh, until I was about second grade. And then from uh, that point, we moved down to uh, to Aromas, to this ranch. And we moved to this property. And this is where I grew up. With my brother, he was seven years older than me, and my parents, my dad, he was a, and my mom, well, my dad was a truck driver, and my mom worked for the trucking company that my dad ran. My brother also was a truck driver and a truck mechanic, and that's kind of why we moved to the 65-acre property. He wanted his trucking operation co-located with where he lived, so he built out the, um, he built out the, a, a big shop and a big, you know, section of the property dedicated towards the trucking company. Interestingly, that lifestyle and that type of work had uh, a lot of reason. It was a lot of the motivation for me to join the Navy. I did not want to be a truck driver, and I did not, <laughs> I did not want to be a truck driver or a truck mechanic. So I saw how how hard of work that was. And I'm not saying I'm I'm adverse to hard work, but I saw the type of work it was, and I saw the hours and what my brother and my dad put in and you know how how much they put into it and i was just like this isn't this isn't for me i need to find something else i need to do something else and that's where i was uh i actually went for two or three months before dropping out to to enlist in the navy gotcha well then um with that did you have any members of military in your extended family that kind of inspired you to go that direction uh, my grandfather, he was in the Korean War um, from my mom's side, and he was kind of, you know, it, it felt like at that time in my family, not a lot of members were in the military. So he was one of the early influ- or one of the influences from, you know, an earlier generation. One of my cousins who was my brother's age, he was seven years older than me, too. He also he had gone into the Air Force. But other than that. And then my cousin, who was my age after I went into the Navy, he went into the Air Force. But other than that, there was not a lot of military um, influence in my life, especially in my immediate family. 
uh, there wasn't a lot of military influence. Well, obviously, you ended up being a super high-level performer. Were you an athlete or a sportsman when you were a school age? Well, so I think that's also, when I look back at my youth and how I ended up becoming a SEAL and why I did that, I think my athletic, my lack of athletic success in high school was part of the motivation for me to, uh, to try to go to that route. Essentially, you know, I played football. I was on our high school football team for all four years. I think I started one game once and like, I was not a stellar uh, player on the team by any stretch of the imagination. I tried out for basketball. Uh, I didn't get picked. I dabbled in wrestling a little, but I really wasn't into that. And so I was uh, average to below average um, athlete in sports at high school, but I really loved sports and I really loved the physicality of testing myself and pushing myself, but, um, but nowhere near what I would have liked to have seen with a, with a high school career in sports. One thing I later learned I should have probably been heavily involved with, but I didn't get involved with at all was running like cross country. Cause once I decided to become a seal and started training for, um, for, for that path, I started running a lot and I, I was pretty good at running still to this day. I'm, if I, if I train, I'm pretty good. So when I'm running, um, I think I would have, had more success if I would have gone a cross-country route in high school than, than some of the team sports I tried. I reached out to some SEAL friends, some you know CrossFit friends uh, like Ron Ortiz, and um, one of them was George Ryan, and he, he mentioned what a great striker you were. So did you get into martial arts when you were younger, or was that more when you were actually into the tactical space? No, so that's another thing. That was in my youth, and uh, so I've always been into the – the martial arts and the striking sports, especially not really into grappling and that sort of thing. But um, so the boxing for me, you know, while I was studying all those martial arts, having a heavy bag and having a speed bag at home was was an easy way to continue training. Um, so so as a kid and growing up, I played a lot with those items, and so I was always into striking and boxing and. Even to this day, I still enjoy punching a bag, punching a speed bag, and just um, go, playing with those skills. I also uh, – I never boxed. Like, I never took formal instruction as a kid. I kind of wish I did, and I never boxed on any sort of amateur level or anything like that. But um, I just didn't feel like where, where I was growing. It, there wasn't a lot growing up. Didn't feel like there was a lot of opportunities for that. I think there actually was. I just didn't find them. Uh, but it's something that I really – enjoyed and loved and even to this day i'm a huge fan i think boxing might be my favorite uh sport to watch beautiful well what about at the high school age as far as career aspirations you knew you didn't want to be a truck driver were you thinking about the military even those final few years no absolutely not and it's funny because i was kind of i didn't know what i wanted to do i knew i needed to go to college uh i knew i'd figure out what i wanted to do in college but essentially, once I graduated from high school, uh, that summer, I went to the movies with my girlfriend. And the movie we ended up seeing was The Rock. And The Rock with Nick, Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. It's about this group of Marines who take over Alcatraz. And then they call in the Navy SEALs to, um, to rescue all the hostages and retake over the island. Well, 
the seals end up getting all killed. The Marines shoot him and, and uh, take him out. But when when they came into the movie and into their scenes, they were all dressed in black. They had their scuba gear. They they just built them up. They're really cool looking. They had these little underwater submarines and everything about them was like super to me intriguing and cool. So I left that movie. Remember, this is the summer after I graduated high school. Super intrigued by those guys, by the SEALs. Now, growing up as a kid at the ranch, I played with a lot of G.I. Joes. I shot on the ranch. I was already kind of into that stuff. I knew of Navy SEALs, but I never thought I wanted to be one. But so then I left that movie and I was like, man, those guys, that look really cool. I wonder what it's like. I wonder what it's like to do that or wonder what it takes to uh, be one of them. And so I do what I did then and what I still do to this day. If I get into something, I really study it and read about it and consume all the content that I can on the topic. So I started Googling or I'm not Googling. I started uh, buying books and started researching. And actually, the internet was out there around the time. So it was 96. I don't know if it was Google, but I started using the internet to look into it and um, buying all the books I could find, all the Marcinko books, uh, Dick Couch. There was a few other books at that time on the topic. Uh, Watch the movies, rewatch Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen and just consumed all the content I could on the thing, on the, on the uh, SEALs and the organization. And the one thing I, one of the, one, the reoccurring themes that kept coming across in all of this was their training. And uh, of course, I'm going to say this, but it's at this, especially in this day and age, it's a lot of people debate it or argue, but we won't do that. But the content <laughs> I was reading was saying how their training is the hardest training in the military. And they're the, the hardest special operations and the hardest uh, selection process to get through to uh, was to become a Navy SEAL. So once I started seeing that reoccurring theme, something hit, something popped. And it was this notion, do I have what it takes to do that? And so that was just lingering in my mind. I wonder if I can do that. Do I have what it takes to do that, to, to, to make it through their training? And it was just bugging me. And it was just like there. And it was just, it was haunting me. And, and I kind of started processing everything. And I, I realized I wanted to know if I had what it took. And I realized, you know, a, a lot of that motivation was I still at this time felt like maybe I had something to prove, especially because of the athletic foundation, which I just told you about, wasn't stellar. So I started going back and forth. Well, I can try this or I can delay it and wait till after college. I eventually told my parents, hey, I want to do this. And they're like, no, we recommend you finish college. You should do college. And then after that, you can decide if you want to still join the Navy. So I started college two, three months into college. Something clicked. And I just had this, this vision of if I don't drop out of school now and pursue this dream, a decade from now, 28, 29, 30 years old, I'll be a, I'll have a, professional life doing something I don't know what in a in a in a standard job and I'll be looking back wondering I wondered what would have happened with my life if I would have tried being a seal and I didn't want to have that I didn't want to have that haunting me for the rest of my life I want because I thought if I stay in school for four years things will change 
I'll fall in love. I'll go in a different direction. I'll start a family. I'll get a job. There, there was no, I didn't believe in myself that I could do four years of college and then still want to be a SEAL. I just thought things would change. So I dropped out. I dropped out of college at two or three months in, enlisted in the Navy and started training really hard for to prep to go to BUDS. And then like four or five months after I dropped out was when I ended up getting um, shipped off to boot camp in, in, Navy, in uh, Great Lakes, Great Lakes, Illinois. And then from there, I went to a school, which is a vocational school. At the time, I was a parachute rigger. And then from there, I went to BUDS. And I was very fortunate to actually make it through in one. The class I started with is the class I finished with. And uh, I wasn't injured. So injuries are a big thing. Or I wasn't rolled back. Being rolled back for performance is another big thing. And then, of course, the third thing is quitting. And I wasn't—I obviously didn't quit. So I had a very good run through the program. Absolutely. Well, that's that's rare because I mean, a lot of them, the you know the seals that I've had on here, they did get rolled back usually because of injury. Um, yep. So obviously, you had that you know longevity and the the mindset. One thing I ask all of the special operations, you know, men and women that come on here. What, when you look back, had you done right to prepare physically? What had you done wrong? And then ultimately, what was the the thought in your mind that stopped you ringing the bell and so many other people did? I, I believed in myself and I believed I could make it. And I still felt this like I had to prove something. Like I really, I didn't, I couldn't quit. And I felt I, so many people told me not to do it. And I felt like so many people were doubting me, even though my family ended up being incredibly proud of and supportive of me. I felt like my dad, especially kind of didn't believe I could do it. Um, and so I really felt like I had something to prove to them, but more importantly, I had something to prove to myself. And, and I knew here's the thing, by the time I got there, here's the other thing I realized. I, by the time you get there, I realized, wow, I am so fucking close to doing this. Like, you know, less than a year before that, I was thinking, I wonder if I have what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. Now I, I'm in the fucking training to be a Navy SEAL. And it was, it was frankly surreal. Um, here I am, what, 18, 19 years old. I think it was 19, 19 years old at the time. And I'm, from from having this idea a summer ago or so to now, like I'm in it and I'm going through the training, uh, that that weighed on me heavily, and I was not gonna let that opportunity slip by me. Um, and that's like a big macro vision of kind of what I'm talking about. But like, even if I dive into that question a little more to give you a specifics of how I like what helped me make it through. There was kind of this notion in my mind, and I, I've given people this advice when they're training uh, to go to BUDS or if they go to BUDS, is like you got to break it down into small segments. Because if you don't, if you just look at it in its entirety, it is incredibly overwhelming and daunting. And what I, what I mean by that is, so even when, once you make it through Hell Week, let's say, I don't know where it is now in the training, but back then Hell Week was like five or six weeks into the training. Well, people would... Un- assume incorrectly that making it through hell week was like after that it would get easier it did not get anywhere easier at all actually it probably ramped up and um but at that point you wake up or you go to bed and you're like oh my god i still have five months of this to go through (laughs) i've already been through a month and i still have 
five, and that is daunting. Even, check this out, even when you hit the halfway point thinking, I still have three more months of this, daunting. Even when you hit, you're almost done, when you have a month left, four or five weeks of, of that just nonstop, relentless torture and abuse, it weighs on you heavily. So, so for me, there was a point where that really started, it, that, what I'm explaining there, hit me and was weighing on me. And so finally, in my own mind, I had to deal with it somehow. And the way I decided to deal with it was, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it to the next meal. And so Buds was really like they fed us really well. And, and so you'd, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And like you'd go to the chow hall, the galley, the mess, whatever we called it. And, and you could eat a lot of food. And um, so eating was never an issue. And those were like anchor points of the day. Here's the thing about those. Just to eat every day, we ran six miles a day. So why I say that is the place where we ate was one mile away from our barracks. So we'd run to breakfast. We'd eat. Then we'd run back. Then we'd still do a four-mile time run or some other evolution. Then we'd run to lunch a mile, and we'd run back another mile. And then later, you'd run to dinner, and then you'd run back. So, so for me, I said, all right, all I need to do every day is just make it to the next meal. And, and that's what I threw out the entire process. Uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, well, let's say after breakfast, we're getting hammered. We're sitting out in the ocean. They're making us do push-ups. They're making us do all this stuff. I was like, all right, don't worry about this. All you need to do is survive till lunch. And then I make it to lunch and I'm like, that's a huge victory. Now all I need to do is make it to dinner. And I just kept thinking that over and over and just repeating that over and over and over. And I knew, I knew it'd be, I knew the, the pain I was going through now would be so worth it in the end. I really believed it. I really believed like becoming a Navy SEAL was going to be life-changing and defining of me in so many ways. I had no idea to what, like to, to the, how immense that would be in, in, in my life, obviously, but I knew it was going to be such a important thing for me to accomplish. So it was, there was no doubt, like in my mind, I never, I could say like, I, and I say this confidently, like, I really don't feel like I ever felt like quitting because of all those things that just described to you. Like I had to cope with things. I had to, I had to figure out how I was going to get to that point, but um, quitting to me, it just didn't, I didn't, I don't think it was there. Well, a couple of things out of that. Firstly, I think if everyone had to run a mile for their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we'd definitely address some of the obesity epidemic that we have in this country. Uh, yeah. But um, secondly, sure. the, the micro victories is a very important thing. I think that's one of the issues that, you know, we see in, in so many problems in society is you know, the end goal is say, let's say in obesity, you, you want to lose a hundred pounds where well, you're looking at a hundred pounds instead of, you know, this is what I want to achieve today or this morning. And using that mindset, not just obviously for completing SEAL training, but just anything in life. Absolutely. Yep. For sure. Right. Well, the interesting perspective that you have, because I know your career went from 98 to 2010, is you're one of my guests that spanned 9-11. So through your lens, what was your training like pre-9-11 and how did it change post-9-11? And the reason I ask that is in my profession, I think some of the the better departments do a lot of kind of what-if training, you know, pre-planning and trying to come up with scenarios and therefore are somewhat ready when, you know, the, the fire ground or the battleground shifts 
the obviously conversely there are some that don't and are caught by surprise so what did you you know what shift did you observe in your uh, time in the service that's a great question and, and one thing i always like to remind people of about that is so uh yeah my i enlisted in 97 98 97 and um i enlisted pre 9-11 and that's like a big uh, and actually this is silly but i still go here in my own mind and i'll tell you why it's silly in a minute sometimes i i've went i've gone to a place where i really respect the people who enlisted after 9-11 and i thought hey would i have done the same thing because here's the reality if you enlisted after 9-11 in that in that let's say that decade immediately after 9-11 i mean there were fucking high probability you were going to go to war and you might not make it back so i and I know I still would have, but I still, I still wonder. Like, so I, I really, I really respect all the individuals who enlisted after 9/11. Because frankly, I enlisted during peacetime, and there was not much <laughs> in the world going on in that phase. Eventually, so after buds, I made it to a SEAL team, and that was 98 timeframe, February 98. And so for the, I was a SEAL for a couple, two, three years, where we trained. Even after 9-11, training was a, a, obviously a huge piece of everything to do. But we spent so much time training, even on the deployments where we deploy. I was at SEAL Team 4, so we deployed to South America. We spent a lot of time training, um, well deployed. And, and it felt like it just felt like this endless cycle of we're always being prepared. We're always going to be ready for um, these missions we train for. But even in the only short three years before 9-11 that I was a SEAL, you do get to this point where you're like, fuck, we're never going to do anything. Like, we're never going to get to, um, we're never going to get to do what we're training for. I even felt that tension in, in my, in my service time. Well, then 9-11 hits and it's like, and I remember where I was, I was in Wyoming on a sniper trip with some other snipers, uh, the team I was uh, working on, we were training the BEI, Bureau of Indian Affairs. We were working with some of their individuals. And um, I woke up that morning. We're at Glacier, Glacier National Park, Glacier Hotel. I forgot the hotel was called. And uh, I walk into the lobby and everyone's like huddled around the TVs. And like I look at the TV and I was like, holy shit. And even now saying it, like I'm getting chills, like just remembering that moment. And it's like, wow, everything's fucking different. And here's the, here's the craziest part about that for me too. When that all went down, I should even, I should have led with this because it made the story more powerful. But when we went out there to train with the BEI, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, they're kind of like the FBI, uh, but for Indian reservations. And one of the initial days we went to train with them, we walked into their um, facility. And it's, it's you know, kind of like an FBI facility. And so they have on their wall a top 10 list, a top 10 FBI top 10 wanted list. And I remember looking at that list and I remember seeing Osama bin Laden on that list. And really? I just like read, read his bio, processed it. And I was like, yeah, this is trip. Like, this is a guy. And I, I, by this point, I think the coal bombing had already, like a lot of that other stuff had happened. And I remember seeing that in the B, uh, B, B, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs facility and just like, huh, okay, just noting it. And then no shit, a couple of days later, 9-11 happened. And then, you know, obviously within a few weeks, we'd figure out that was all tied together. And so that was kind of like a powerful time for me. Interestingly, um, so we all thought right away, you all think, think like, shit, we're all going to war. We're all going to like, we're all going to get really busy really fast. That's the, the, the weird thing 
to me at that period was that didn't happen. And like, especially there were some people, there were some units, there were some SEAL teams who did go right away, but it wasn't blanket like all of them. And I was at SEAL Team 4. And so we still went on our scheduled deployment to Afghanistan. I'm sorry, not Afghanistan, um, uh, South America. We still did our job. And we kind of got to this place where you're like watching it and you're seeing all this stuff go on, but you're not getting to, you're like, we're, we're not there. Um, so then there was a phase where, all right, there was another goal I had. And, and you know what? Like, I'm not going to talk much about it because I really believe strongly in, in what I did and the secrecy with it, but I'll just breeze over it lightly. And I, I, and I, I strong believer that I'm, I, I draw a line in discussing some of this stuff, but to, to go, to get to that level of, uh, of going to combat, there was another step I had to take. And so I volunteered to do that step. I took that step, um, kind of a, it was another challenge. I had to go through another selection process. I made it through that selection process. And, and I went to a team where, yes, right away, I was seeing combat. I was going deploying to Afghanistan and deploying to those places. And, and frankly, like, because I'm still in close contact with this group and, and people, like, I just don't talk about it. And I won't talk about it because it, it's, a, it's a significant part of my life. It's a significant achievement. And there's so many other people out there who, who do talk about this stuff or who do talk about being at this unit or those units and do... Uh, I don't want to say profit off of, but lean on and, and, and make their identity off of it. But I won't do that. So that, that's frankly like the, that's where I will like leave that phase of my military career up for uh, people. I don't want to talk about it. It's not to share with the world. Well, thank you for at least, you know, giving that part of the story. I mean, I'm, I feel honored that you were, you know, able to, to tell us that and obviously the rest is <laughs> those who know know um so one thing i do like to ask though and you know if, if you're again wanting to to convey what you saw um anyone in the military doesn't have to be special operations one thing any of us that haven't served myself included we get two polarizing views of war you get the kill them all let god sort them out lens and then you get the you know they're all baby killers lens and there's nothing really in the middle. So I like to ask the men and women that were out there, you know, of, of, a, of a perspective. So regardless of politics, regardless of whatever sends a person into a combat zone, um, you know, there, there's obviously things that usually they see that then at that point, not even so much justify, but they see some of the, the evil in the world and, you know, and it then gives them a, a very micro mission as well. So, in your time over wherever you were, were there any moments where you're like, oh shit, now, now I really see firsthand some of the horrific things that these people are doing to their own people, for example? This is similar. Like what I'm going to say there is, yeah, like I, I'm, there's, I, I, and maybe this is unhealthy, but there's a lot of stuff I, I keep in and I don't want to shit. Like here, here, let me paint it to you this way. There's stuff I won't tell my family and or my closest friends. There's a lot of friends who, who I would consider, there are a lot of people who are very close to me and my best friends, and I don't share any of these stories. So therefore, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I'm definitely not going to share this stuff on a podcast. Um, it, it goes all, it goes all directions though. I'll say that it, the, the inhuman, like the, some of, sometimes 
everyone can be fucking, um, everyone can cross the line, you know, like it, it, it's there. It's, 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 um, doing stuff like that at that level. You see a lot of things. Yeah. Well, I think that's just important. So again, I, I just purely want to put it out there. If people, you know, want to walk through that door, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I think what I'm trying to get across and I don't need any more from you at all, but it's just that what we're asking our men and women to do, you know, it is absolutely immense. And we, as the people who never deployed, who never put on that uniform, even though I wore a different uniform, it's, it's, we need to know what these men and women are truly doing, what they're sacrificing, what their families are sacrificing. So, you know, that absolutely that, that sacrifice and what we do is tremendously immense. And, um, it's, it's the, the depth to it is, is insane. And interestingly, like when we were doing it, when I specifically me was, was there, like, I'm not thinking of, of, uh, I'm not thinking of the nation. I'm not thinking of like, we're doing the polit political environment. I'm not thinking of our president. All I cared about was the guy to my, the left and right of me. And that's what I thought about. And that's what I like, okay, we're going to succeed in our mission, whatever we're tasked to do, we're going to go after this guy or that guy. But at the end of the day, especially when you're on target, the thing that mattered most to me was the person to the left and right of me and like that my teammates to, to, to a degree that like, it's, you wanted, you wanted to get back with everyone you went out with. And, um, and that's like, it was that kind of became my motivation. I think I was politically or um, ignorant back then in terms of like, I just didn't engage. I wasn't paying attention to like, even I wish I was way more in tune to the whys we were there and to like what, but I was so immersed in the training and the prep and the team and the guys that like all the big picture stuff, I wasn't paying attention to at all. And and I'm not saying others weren't others on our team or not, but just me personally, like I, I didn't, I wasn't in that head space. Beautiful. So, so tell me about when you came across CrossFit itself, and then if you applied that in any way, shape, or form in the strength and conditioning with your fellow SEALs. Yeah, so I, I, the unit I was at, I was an early adopter to CrossFit. I was big into climbing, and like climbing was my passion. And so I started climbing um, with some of the big names at the time in alpinism, Mark Twy and Steve House, and a few of these other um, guys who were like legends in the scene. And Mark Twy, actually, I asked him about his training how he trained and he had wrote a book about um he had wrote a book on training for alpinism because i i thought like some of the missions we were doing and the stuff we were doing overseas i i related that very much to alpinism and some of the high the the way they climb these mountains they're they're long efforts even though they try to climb them uh light and fast but they're still you know half a day full day and they also are obsessed to a fault with uh making their gear super light and i was that way too with with the way i operate and a lot of other guys were too you know if you had lighter kit you could move faster so i i looked towards that scene for light for for making for best in class equipment choices especially around cold weather gear and for climbing equipment obviously because i was into climbing and for fitness because i i kind of related the two well, Mark Twite had wrote a book on, uh, it was called Extreme Alpinism, and it was on how to train for, for that type of climbing. And it was all LSD stuff, long, slow distance. 
It was like long bike rides, long runs. And that's kind of after an initial phase. So this was probably five or six years into the team. So that was kind of the direction I started going with training. I thought, okay, I need to train long to go long. Well, so eventually I met him and went on a climbing trip with him. And I asked him about the book and I asked him about the training. And he's like, hey, I don't do that stuff at all anymore. I go, really? And it blew me away. He's like, yeah, I do something else. And I go, what's that? He's like, I do CrossFit. And he starts telling me about CrossFit. And the thing about Mark Twight is he's very unassuming. And he's a really small guy. And I was a small guy amongst big guys. Like amongst SEALs, I was below average in stature. I'm not muscular. I didn't have big, big arms and big legs. And uh, most of the SEALs I was around were bigger than me. And so Mark near me was much smaller than me. And I was kind of unimpressed. I'm like, ah, well, this guy's telling me to do CrossFit, but look at him. Like, I'm not out here to look like him. If anything, if I cared about looks, I'd rather look like the rest of the SEALs that I was working with. And um, so, but kind of the same concept as when we look back to when I, be, when I saw the rock. What did that do? It planted the seed. And so what did I do? I started studying it. I started going to the website every day. I started reading about it. I started reading all the CrossFit journals and, and it was, for me, it was kind of intimidating because the movements I had never done before, clean and jerks and so many of the barbell Olympic lifts they were doing, I had never even tried. I wasn't exposed to them, not even for the four or five, six years at that time I'd been a SEAL. Nobody, not, practically nobody in the SEAL teams at that time was doing that stuff, those type of movements, independent of, of CrossFit at least to the extent of what I was exposed to. Maybe there was other teams where some guys were doing stuff, but I never saw it. And um, so for five, six months, I was just looking and studying, um, reading about CrossFit, paying attention to it, but I never dove in. I actually convinced one guy on a deployment who was big into fitness to give it a try. And, and he ended up doing, and he loved it and saw great results from it. And he didn't know this, but at the time, he was kind of my experiment. I was, uh, he thought I was doing CrossFit too. I wasn't. And <laughs> through him, I saw his, how much he got from it and how much he progressed. And he had really enjoyed it. So eventually, I decided to dive in. And um, I dove in, and I dove in once on a deployment a short, quick deployment. And I um, did it every day, followed the main site, and I was really sore. I went, remember going on missions at this time in this deployment. Um, we had a really high tempo and we were doing missions every night, every other night. And I would sometimes be really sore and I'd go out on a mission. And you know what? At the end of the day, I was fine. <laughs> at the end of the day, it being really sore, like it didn't hold me back. Sometimes I'd push right through it. Uh, you'd kind of forget about it. And so I trained religiously in it on deployment for that month, month and a half and um, fell in love with it. And then eventually I got stationed out in California to go to DLI. And while there, I knew that Santa Cruz was the epicenter. DLI is Defense Language Institute. It's in Monterey. And I knew that that was the epicenter for um, CrossFit. Well, not Monterey, but Santa Cruz. And so I started um, commuting to Santa Cruz. I was actually living at the ranch, going to school in Monterey. And then some days I would commute to Santa Cruz to where the founder, Greg Glassman and his gym, uh, they were located. And so I started training there and got to know them, became really close with them, became friends with them, went to a seminar. Then they started asking me to help out at seminars. 
and just um, went all in. Basically, any type of work they asked me to do, any seminars, I said yes, started going on the road with them, uh, started teaching them, got stationed in San Diego as a BUDS instructor. And so for there was three years from 2007 to 2010, where I was working full-time for CrossFit and also full-time BUDS instructor. Then it hit this point where I had to make a decision. Do I want to stay in? And if I stay in, I'd have to go back to being operational, which means going back to a SEAL team where I'm deploying. If I did that, I wouldn't be able to work for CrossFit. So I'd have to give up CrossFit. Or do I get out and work for CrossFit full-time already? I was already working full-time. I made the choice. I mean, CrossFit was providing way better for my myself and my family than the Navy would. I loved being a SEAL. but And at this stage in 2010, I mean, I had already created the game. I was behind the games and the seminar program. And so much of it was blowing up and becoming big. There was It was a unique phase in the development of CrossFit. And I was at the center of it. And it would have been silly for me to turn my back on that. So I decided to get out and go full-time CrossFit. I actually considered the reserve thing for a little bit, but then even at that time, there were still guys deploying a lot, being pulled from the reserves to go to Iraq. And I just couldn't, as much work as CrossFit was, I couldn't go on another deployment like that. So I decided not even to do the reserve thing. So I got out. Now, question for you. So a few, um, there's two kind of, of transitions that I see. There's, the ones where someone transitions from military first responders and they have another tribe to go into. They have another purpose and that transition usually seems to be pretty smooth. Then you get the other side where it's the SEAL that identifies as a SEAL and everything's poured into that. And when they transition out, they struggle, the firefighter, the police officer. Um, you know, what was your transition like and what do you attribute to it being good or bad depending on your experience? Well, it was seamless and it was seamless because I was very fortunate to have that community that I was already part of and that job that I'd already been working for for three, four years. And um, so for me, and one of the big things, so while I was working for CrossFit from 2007 to 2010 and active duty, early on, I made it clear to Greg and I made it clear to Tony Budding, who was in charge of our media that time and a few other people in the organization, I do not and I cannot I do not want you guys to publicize me or to put put me out as a Navy SEAL. I go keep all of that stuff off of the internet. Keep out like I can be seen in photos and I can be you know out there, but I'm not going to be out there as a Navy SEAL. And so there was a thick line in the sand, and we didn't cross it. Even when I got out for the first, I got out in 2010. For the first three or four years, I. Uh, I had no, um, I, I, we really kept that out of the, the front line. And I'm actually really proud of that. I'm, even to this day, I meet people who are still like, hey, man, I just found out you're a Navy SEAL. I've known about you in CrossFit for a decade, but I had no idea you're a Navy SEAL. And every time I hear that, I smile and I think, yeah, I did exactly what I needed to do. And I'm proud of that. I didn't want my identity in CrossFit or my success in CrossFit to be defined by a Navy SEAL. Even to this day, nobody, hardly anybody refers to, yeah, Dave Casher, the Navy SEAL. No, it's Dave Casher, the CrossFit guy. No, it's Dave Casher, the guy who created the games. Dave Casher, the director of the games. It's, it's nothing. The Navy SEAL piece of it is not the lead or the primary. And that, to me, is a huge accomplishment that I'm proud of. That being said, I'm also not um, 
naive in thinking that, hey, you know what? Being a Navy SEAL did get me in the door with Greg Glassman and the CrossFit cohort of people at the time, maybe further than it would have if I wasn't a Navy SEAL. So I'm very respectful of that. And also, though, what I think in general and advice I give to people is, hey, man, that's great that you're a Navy SEAL or fucking Marine or whatever you did. That's all good. But when you're trying to get to the next level or you're trying to transition to a civilian world and civilian life, you need to let it go. (laughs) Meaning, hey, that can't define everything about you at all times. And frankly, if you want to be successful, you need to be afraid not to start over again. And meaning like start over, like when I started working for CrossFit and doing seminars, I had been at the pinnacle of, of my SEAL profession. But the first few jobs I had at seminars was taking the trash out and moving chairs. And I had no issue with and setting up chairs for the classroom. And I had no issue with that. And I was humble and knew I was in a new environment and I had to prove myself and was willing and able to start over and prove myself. I feel like a lot of people this day and age lean so heavily on that identity and think that it should get so, it should open up so many doors. And here's the thing, it can and will open up doors, but once that door is open, what you do with it is the significant defining piece of it all. You can't, you can't, it can open the door and then you've got to capitalize on it. You've got to, you've got to make something happen and you've got to prove value to, um, to essentially the civilian communities or, or audiences you're now working with. But, and, and, you know, in this day and age of Instagram and social media, I mean, you look at, I look at some of these guys out there and what they're doing on their pages in relation to being seals. And it's just kind of, it's kind of over the top. And at some point, like, I feel like saying, at some point, you got to take this mentality, just let it go, man. It's, it's impressive. It's significant. Yeah, you did it a decade ago. You did it five years ago. Even if you did it two years ago, we get it. Like, it's really great. And it's an amazing phase of your life. But there's a, there's a like, you got to move on type <laughs> thing going on. And I think a lot of guys struggle with, with moving on and trying to find an identity independent of that. And it could be partially because it's scary and the other thing too and it's and i will say this when i look at what i'm saying again i'll say this it's easy for me to say and it's easy for me to say because i had this great opportunity with crossfit and i transitioned out and i didn't need to lean on being a seal and all of that so you know that i I recognize that i do recognize that well, I think that's a really important thing to hear, though, because, you know, as, as I said, some people were fortunate enough to have that. You know, some of the guys in Echelon Front, they had that to transition to. But even, you know, I think if, if you're approaching retirement, whatever you're in, it's understanding that you do have to start creating that next chapter. And as you said, there's, there's, I'm so proud of my career as a firefighter, but I retired two years ago to focus on this because I thought this was the false, mo- excuse me, the force multiplier on making a difference in the world, but not wearing what I call the magic trousers, the, the fire gear. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's emasculating to my ego, my fragile ego, but then you push that aside and realize, well, there's more to life than just that one uniform. Absolutely. All right. Well, one thing I want to talk about, we actually did, I, I ran a, a hero workout this morning. Um, Kevin Houston, who's one of the, the seals that died in extortion 17, I, one thing that I've really admired and it really did draw me to CrossFit was the, 
the close relationship and the admiration with that community and you know the military and the first responders and obviously the Prescott 19 workout in Arizona was was a huge thing for the fire service so you know who was kind of responsible what what was the kind of um, ethos as far as making sure that you embrace those communities Greg Glassman I mean Greg, Greg was he he was the foundation of that and he he loved he loved everyone in the country and the world really who served um, first responders and, and everyone like that. He, he's the one who drove the hero program. He's the one who drove the Prescott 19. And like he built, you know, we were really proud, especially when you had guys like me around too, but everybody within the organization was really proud of those who served and we put a priority. And so it made it like a great um, environment, like a workplace. Like I, I really respected our stance on that and cared about first responders, police, LEO, mill. And I think it, we lived that through through the hero workouts and and we express that to the community through hero workouts and and uh, Prescott event and stuff like that. So so the re- the reality is Greg really set the tone for that and drove that and I really respect that and appreciate it especially because obviously my time in the service and you know there's a fuck man like you mentioned Kevin Houston yeah I knew him and worked with him and then there was a phase where a lot of those hero workouts in CrossFit like. Uh, especially the seals, like I knew those guys, or I worked closely with them. Uh, Badger, Tommy V. Um, there's so it was hero workouts to me were also a, a significant uh, way of staying connected and and acknowledging some of the guys um, who I served with or who had the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, well, I think for what I've seen in the communities that do it, I forget who it was. I was talking to someone a while ago now, but. It, it was a sense of being able to do something like, you know, thank you for your service or whatever is, is nice to hear to, to certain groups. But when you get a group of men and women, you know, dr- driving themselves into the dirt in memory of someone, they feel like that's an actionable thing, even though it's not actually helping the family or unless it might be if it's a fundraiser. But it just I think there's a sense of the civilians of just showing the family, showing whoever's left from, you know, that, that fallen hero that, hey, all the way in England, all the way in Iceland, you know, South Africa, we give a shit and, and we do, you know, we, we thank you and, and we see you and we remember you. Well, that's been what you're saying there is too, one of the most powerful things of the hero workout for me to see is how much our community, regardless of where they are in the world, unite behind them. So, I mean, for a large part, hero workouts, maybe to a fault, have largely been um, U.S.-centric and U.S.-focused. But yet that hasn't prevented our community at all globally and internationally to rally behind them. And so we um, even so Chad. Chad is another guy I knew. He, uh, he actually passed away a couple of years ago. We did the thousand step up workout for him. And when, when uh, I ended up posting it, like the international response – that workout received was tremendous and huge. You look at Murph and some of these other ones, they're just, yeah, like it's crazy. It just, it even transcends just the, uh, our nation. And uh, they're so powerful to like the whole CrossFit community unites behind them and, and they kind of show their respect. Absolutely. And Chad, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that was uh, a suicide. And I think that was a, a discussion that needs to be had. And it was, again, those hero workouts are a great opportunity to to remove some of the stigma and get people 
talking, not just doing 22 push-ups, but actually fucking talking about this and, and creating an environment where our men and women feel comfortable to actually say they're hurting. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, staying on the military, um, I, uh, Chris Hinshaw actually had, uh, you know, some input and also Jason Gardner, CEO. Um, they were asking about your take on the change in the physical, you know, annual physical tests in the military. Obviously, the army just redid theirs. Um, and they were wondering, you know, was there a CrossFit influence? And because uh, Chris even sent me a thing where I guess there was opposition to the most recent one saying it wasn't fair. So overall, you know, what, have there been any CrossFit specific um, influence on annual tests? And, you know, what, what do you think of the most recent ones? Well, I haven't paid attention much to the most recent ones. I've seen some of the Marine Corps stuff. I think some of the army, uh, like the deadlift stuff of oh, here's the reality. Of course, it's at this stage, almost all been influenced by CrossFit. And, and a lot of people don't want to admit that or won't admit that. But, you know, I was in the military in a, phase and decade where nobody was doing functional movements like this or if you were it was very much the um you were an outlier and now functional movements in this type of training has become more the norm and the reason it's become the norm is because of crossfit so and and you know weightlifting now is more mainstream than ever and that's good and powerlifting and gymnastics movements so much of this stuff is more mainstream and frankly it's because of uh because of this program and you know, when you look at when you look at functional movements at high intensity, the root of of a majority of that these days is CrossFit. There's a lot of spinoffs. There's a lot of uh, variations. There's a lot of people who even claim they're they're not CrossFit, but you know they came from that. You look at oh no, I don't want to say it. But so, anyways, <laughs> um, um, Yes, CrossFit has been an inspiration for, for a lot of this stuff, and, and especially in some of those physical tests. And there was a phase, I mean, we were doing CrossFit seminars across the military, um, you know, a dozen a year in Fort, uh, I think it was Fort Hood. And there was a handful of bases where we were, like, it was, there were a lot of senior officials in the Army and in the military who were, who saw CrossFit, noted it, and were being heavily influenced by CrossFit. There's also been phases where we've been more formally involved with some of these guys in discussing and working on their um, on some of their tests. And there's also been the, the bureaucracy of some of them have straight up with us, like, hey, because CrossFit is a is a private company and a name brand, you know, we're gonna we're gonna use your guys' methods and we're gonna use what we've learned, but we can't we can't give credit where credit is due. We've also had those conversations and seen that stuff happen. So, um, but even that being said, I think they, a lot of these tests, from what I've seen, I still kind of miss the mark, still aren't as true and effective as, uh, as it could be. For one, like, you know, the reality is you should be testing every day. Every opportunity, every opportunity, every training opportunity is a testing opportunity. And that's where you really see the fitness level um, across all domains and time frames and, and movements of of your soldiers or of your cohort of uh, people you you lead, so to, it goes back to to only test to only have you know uh, a limited number of tests that you test every six months. While what you eventually create there is you create people who are just testing or training for the tests instead of training for a complete fitness. And to train for complete fitness, you need to be testing almost every day with your with your um, 
with your training protocol. Your training protocol is also your testing protocol. What has been your observation of the first responder community? Because one of my frustrations as a, you know, a firefighter that's worked on the West Coast and the East Coast is there's been an opposition to fitness standards being held, annual fitness testing. So we're, you know, we put through, put through the ringer at the beginning. Some good departments maintain that, but it's a rarity that there's an annual test, even though it's a norm in the special operations community. But so many of those men and women on these conversations have said, well, we hold police and fire to the same level as us. You know, you're protecting our family while we're gone. So we want you to be the, the best version of yourselves as well. So in all this time that you've, you've been in the CrossFit world with, you know, a special operations background, what are the pros and cons you've seen in, in police and fire that you've been exposed to? One of the big things I'll say with police is this is separate from fitness, but they don't shoot enough. Um, they need to shoot. They need a majority of police officers and police precincts need to give their, um, their cops more availability to train in shooting. And, uh, and if they do have the availability, they need to take advantage of it because that's such a fucking critical skill for them. And not only shot, uh, target identification, but just shot placement. Um, so I believe in general strongly that cops need to train more and for both communities. You know, I've sat down with a handful of senior firefighters who talk, who share stats uh, with me on like the obesity rate or the cardiovascular disease rate within fire departments. And it's, it's huge. And it's so surprising to me that like you guys have to rely on your bodies as do cops, as do military uh, and your fitness to be, to perform at a high level. And, and why, why would you guys have issues with obesity in a fire department? Like it, it baffles me. It's it, it, uh, I can't understand it. And it, so I've been intrigued by this notion. And now that being said, some of the fucking fittest people I know <laughs> have also been firefighters, you know, Bill Grundler, Rich Froning, uh, who's, who's the guy in Florida? Well, Ron, Jay, Ron, Johnny Ortiz. Mac, Ron Ortiz. Yes. J Max, a staff member of mine on the games team who, uh, who, who qualifies as a uh, master's athlete, but he's a full-time fire chief too. And so, um, so, but so I say that there's some that are, are not in good shape, but there's also obviously a lot that are in premier Matt Chan, Matt Chan's another um, high level uh, fitness performer and firefighter. So I think there's a, I think those communities, police and fire, need to take a little and the same thing with cops but i've also seen a lot of really fit cops for all the non-fit cops there's some very uh high performing and fitness police officers but for the most part i think those communities need to put more of a premium on staying in shape and on staying in a uh in a ready state that uh probably a majority of them currently don't have a necessary ready state to perform their job at a high level that's probably lacking in a majority of those communities yeah no and, and i agree and that's the problem is it's a double-edged sword and they're both completely you know addressable but one is the ownership and there's no question you know i i kept myself in that shape my whole career but it was despite the environment not because of the environment but the other side is a lot of these men and women are working 56 plus hour weeks you know a week 24 hours and the the effect of that kind of shift work on the human body you know destroys the, you know the testosterone and some of these things that create that motivation so the the you know the most motivated do it regardless but there are a lot of people that in the middle maybe if the environment was set up 
a little better maybe they would be where they need to be but they're kind of dragged down by by their environment as well and it's not an excuse it's just a reason yeah yeah i hear you so one of my friends eric wheaton who's a firefighter and a crossfitter as well he was asking you have the md level one have you ever considered a fd or pd version like specific level one for those professions yes absolutely um but we haven't executed on it we've had a lot of talk a lot of discussion uh, I believe it should happen. I don't know if it's, uh, I, I, so I used to, so for all up until basically five, six months ago, my primary goal or primary goal, my primary job in CrossFit was running the training department with Nicole Caro. So all the seminars, all the level ones, all the staffing, uh, we oversaw that. And um, that was, you know, my, my main focus, even more so than the CrossFit Games. A lot of people don't realize that. With the recent change in ownership and the new leadership, um, I'm just focused on the CrossFit Games and no longer in that training world as much as I was before. But throughout, so in that period, yeah, we had a lot of talks with people who were like, hey, let's stand up a uh, course for firefighters or let's do a course for cops. At the time, and I kind of agreed with it, but I, I think there was room for something in the middle. Greg Glassman didn't really believe in um, catering the level one to specific groups. And even honestly, the MDL one, there's nothing different with the MDL one while we were doing that. We don't do that anymore. But while we were doing that, then the current level one. And Greg would be the first person to say that. He'd say, hey, the MDL one curriculum is the same as any other curriculum. But is there room for level ones where the curriculum is tailored towards, you know, let's say in this example, firefighters or police officers? Yeah, I think there is. Um, maybe, and maybe that's more online, especially in the current landscape, than it is um, and it's an in-person course. Or maybe even more online modules in terms of addressing those specific communities. And the only thing, the thing I would say about that is, it shouldn't be created by me. I only mean that by it should be created by people within that community meaning like matt chan and ron ortiz as firefighters should lead the creation of what the level one understanding the level one you know tenants some of them won't change will look for look like for firefighters same thing with cops freddie camacho and a handful of others andy rio should get together and even george ryan and figure out what like a crossfit level one for uh for police officers would look like so, yes, um, I think that's something we should explore. It's definitely, I mean, I'll be honest, it's not like a priority right now. There's, there's a lot of things that, you know, we need to make it through the current uh, global pandemic before I think our focus would be on something like that. Absolutely. Well, well, speaking of that, just touching on that for a moment. So one of my frustrations with this last year has been, Clearly, the 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 message of isolation, social distancing, masks, wash your hands has been delivered squarely to the to the face. What's been frustrating for me, with you know, for a responder background, a wellness background, is the message that while we're you know socially distancing a lot of stuff, we need to be discussing the elements of overall wellness that cause a more acute reaction when you get the virus, obesity, diabetes, all these things. So through your lens, what has been your view of, of that discussion this last year? Well, I mean, you've summed it up precisely how it, uh, the problem with it. Here's the thing. Wearing a mask is a 
as a tiny behavioral change. Uh, staying six feet away from someone is a tiny behavioral change. Washing your hands is a tiny behavioral change. Asking someone, telling someone, telling people you need to change your diet and lifestyle because it's part of what's killing you is a massive behavioral change and a massive economic change in terms of some of the industries that would be affected by some of those uh, assertions we'd make or not we but the people who'd need to say them and you know and would be could be insulting to to some of the current cohorts of people where you know it's it's not popular to talk about being obese rather than b b blaming um highlighting that covid targets some of those things um and some of those individuals to a degree where it's more effective if you are overweight while people don't want to highlight that and kind of highlight the the necess necessity of wearing a mask or the necessity of social social distancing because those are again they're easier to do and they're easier to make people feel good about than telling people hey you're you, you being overweight and being pre-diabetic is going to put you at more risk uh, and, and the thing is, there are some doctors and there are some people who say that stuff, but it's not being emphasized or highlighted enough as it should be. This should be a major reset for society and our nation in terms of the emphasis of fitness and health on everyone. Because I feel like that piece of it is being ignored, that COVID really um, ravages people with uh, comorbidities specifically stuff like uh, metabolic conditions, metabolic disease. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the, the lens that we have in, you know, EMS and, and fire is also we see the end of obesity. We're the ones that stick the tubes down their throats and paddles on their chest and, you know, are doing CPR. And so, yeah, it is a, it, it has become a tricky ground to navigate. But yeah, while we, while we, uh, you know, make obesity okay and, and call it fat shaming if, if you question it, people don't realize that there's a death toll to that. And, you know, we see it every day. Morbid obesity equals an early death. It's that freaking simple. So there's a difference between fat shaming, being a giant asshole, making fun of someone because they're obese, and bringing the, the, the epidemic of obesity to light because you truly care about those individuals and you know that their quality of health is going to be terrible if they don't turn around, you know, their, their nutrition and their movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, one more area I want to get to before we transition to some closing questions. There's been, you know, uh, I guess a wave now of a new kind of, um, yeah, I guess you could say mud run, CrossFit, um, style events, which is the tactical games. Um, one uh -huh. thing that, you know, I, I actually want to enter it myself. I'm absolute white belt with weapons, but one thing uh -huh. that I really like about the philosophy is, and please correct me if I'm wrong. You're probably far more versed than I am. It seems like these events are focused on you have to navigate whatever, you know, obstacle distance it is, but it has to be done to a point where you're then able to operate finite movements through, you know, whatever kind of, um, weapon scenario it is. That has huge applications to police, to fire, where we have a massive exertion and then may have to make a life or death situation, whether it's, you know, uh, using a firearm in law enforcement, whether it's pushing a drug as a paramedic. So what is your view on that kind of tactical game movement? 
Well, I'm a huge fan of fitness, obviously, and I'm a huge fan of the shooting sports. Uh, when I got in, in 2010, when I got out in 2010, I became an avid competition shooter. A friend of mine, Dave Ray, who worked for CrossFit at the time, introduced me to the shooting sport of USPSA, and um, I fell in love with it. And I actually wish, and I actually promote, but people don't have time, got uh, enough time to do this necessarily. But if you're active duty military or if you're in uh, law enforcement, find that, seek out and find shooting sports, specifically stuff like USPSA or PRS and long range shooting if you're a sniper or SWAT team. Because those sports, even though there's, they're a game and there's a sport aspect to them, a lot of the speed and a lot of the skills you get out of those translate well to, to our job. And so I did not find those sports as a civilian. I'm sorry, as when I was in, but I really wish I would have because they would have made me that much better of an operator. But so to this day, I'm an avid shooter. I shoot in a lot of different competitions. Uh, last year, actually in USPSA, they have a new division called PCC, which is pistol caliber carbine. And I set a goal to achieve their, the highest rank that I could without having to, um, without having to, to, travel to multiple matches across the country just based off the rating scale and i did well at that and i got to their their highest level and put a lot of time and effort into it so like the shooting sports for me they're a huge part of my life and i love them and fitness also is a huge part of my life so naturally combining them uh makes a lot of sense to me and and here's the deal i'm a huge fan of the tactical games because they're combining two of those things that I care a lot about. And I'm a fan of them exposing fitness people to shooting and shooting people to fitness and doing something with them. But I am not a fan of the style that they go about doing it. So it's, it's really not for me. And so I don't ever discourage anyone from doing them. I think, you know, if there's shooters out there who want to uh, combine the fitness, go for it. If there's fitness people out there, like Jacob Hefner, a CrossFitter who also shoots, he's talking about doing one. And I said, hey, dude, I'll even train you for it. And I'll be your coach and I'll prepare you in the shooting for that. Uh, he's a high-level CrossFit Games competitor. But for me, the way it's done, especially with the wearing the tactical gear, the body armor and the pistol belts, and like it's too much. It's, it's almost trying too hard. Like it's, um, I don't want to put that gear on and run around all day. I've been there. I've done that. I don't need to, I don't need to play tactical dress up essentially. And, and I'm being, when I'm telling you this, and I guess now I'm telling the world, understand I'm being an incredible fucking snob. I am. I'm being like a, uh, because I've been at the highest levels of the games, I, I'm being a snob and I don't feel like I want to do that for sport. Well, I think there's another expression of it where, and maybe CrossFit will do this, where it's, it's really fitness and it's really shooting. And when I say really fitness, meaning like, yeah, we don't have this required and we're not making any tactical claims. I don't think they're making tactical claims either, but that's just in their name. But like, you know, we're doing fitness, you're doing um, row thousand meters with no gear on, get up and, and shoot some targets, stuff like that. And we actually CrossFit. So interestingly, we did do the first one of these uh, probably six or seven years ago. If you Google, Google CrossFit firefight, it's a video that'll come up with um, some high-level crossfitters. Actually, Rich Froning did it, and some high-level shooters. JJ Ricasa, who's one of the fastest shooters in the world, also did it. He ended up winning. Um, but so we played around with concepts like this, and and even that expression of it to me 
was a better expression that I would enjoy. And that's like, yeah, independent of having to run around and wear body armor the entire time and a tactical pistol belt. Because that, 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 the aspects of tacticality, call it, uh, turn me off. Because I, I'm just like, hey, there's a realm for that. And I believe that's not it. But again, I would never discourage anybody from participating in tactical games. I think it's great that they're bringing the two together. <laughs> But it's not for me, and it's not the way I would do it. And that being said, will CrossFit do something uh, in the future where it's more in line with my vision? I think so. I, I really hope so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push for that direction. But I also don't want it to be seen as trying to uh, to get into their space because it's gonna be a very different expression of it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that I asked that question because I think as you said there's different there's different types and some you know one one might appeal to one group and one might appeal to another i totally get what you're saying because i know there's rucks and things that are you know my friends do is oh it's 36 hours you rock all night i dude i was awake 24 hours at a time for 14 years i'm going to bed every yeah. fucking night from now till i die <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but, exactly <laughs> but from the other side i love that idea and I'd, i'm really excited to see what you guys are bringing because to me as a civilian who owns a gun, you know, especially an Englishman, which is really weird, um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of infor law enforcement, once they've come out of the academy, it's like, what have I got to train for now? So what a great way to just give you a goal, just like you talked about with, you know, passing SEAL training. Give uh, someone who's been on for a while a fresh challenge that is actually firearms related versus you know, just a, a CrossFit event, because I think adding that other element really does, you know, put shooting under duress and then brings in breath control and, you know, um, deregula deregulation of the nervous system and all these things that are very, very applicable to police, fire and EMS. Yep, exactly. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition some closing questions so I can, uh, you know, be mindful of your time. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Wow, great question. Here's the deal. I'm an avid reader. I, uh, last year, I think I read 45 different books. Uh, the year before, in the last three or four years, I've read close to 200. Um, and I almost exclusively, I, I'd rather say what not to read. I almost exclusively, and this isn't a sound uh, very different from most recommend. I don't recommend leadership books. I don't recommend pop leadership books. I don't recommend inspirational books. I don't recommend most modern books. Um, I'm a huge fan of the classics and, and things that essentially books that have survived the, uh, the test of time. And so I, I think a lot of the modern, I think a lot of the pieces people choose to read kind of are just like, just trash. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like. I think a book really needs to survive uh, decades and and centuries of criticism and and those books. When you do read some of the classics, there's a reason why they've survived centuries. There's a reason why they're still immensely popular over um, all that time. They're also incredibly impactful to lean, learn leadership lessons, to learn inspiration, to be inspired, to be motivated, to, to glean something that will help your business. So I don't use reading as a mechanism, unless I'm studying on a topic, but that's, that doesn't 
count towards the reading I'm talking about. I don't use reading as a mechanism to, um, to find direct inspiration. I read it as a mechanism to find indirect inspiration. So meaning I, I read books so off topic from what I'm doing or my line of work or what I do to help inspire me in my line of work, in what I do and in what I'm pursuing. So I, I, I'm all over the map, but like in terms of, of the classics that I read, a lot of Steinbeck, um, cause he's a Bay area writer. Le Mis, I always recommend that. The Count of Monte Cristo is an amazing user-friendly initial, initial classic for people to get into because it's just it, it, the vocabulary and it's so accessible. And, um, there's some, there's some classics that are, that are overwhelming and there's others that are, that are challenges. The Odyssey, Iliad, um, so Homer's stuff. There's, I've, I've read a lot. Uh, I read a lot in that realm. So, uh, anything, go to your local bookstore and pick it, even Hemingway. Um, so many great authors to choose from, but, but I recommend to people get out of your comfort zone. Don't do, don't read what you're expected to read and don't read what everyone else is reading because there's some huge value in going against the grain. And I do that with my reading. Now, uh, on that, I want to rant a little about this because oftentimes people don't ask me about it. I read every morning. First thing I do when I wake up, anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour and a half. No kidding. If I like the book a lot, I'll read for an hour and a half in the morning. Then throughout the day, if I have a short little break or if I want to step away from Instagram, I'll read for five to 10 minute sections throughout the day. And before I go to sleep, I read uh, anywhere another, I'll say probably anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour uh, in the evening. And I buy the book. I always have the paperback or the hardcover uh, version of the book. And I always buy it on my iPhone. And that by having them in both places, that's how I'm able to, to read and stay disciplined in reading so much. Um, cause you always have your phone on you. And if you have it set on the page, you left it off in the paper. So you go to a car or you go to a medical appointment or you go to the car. There's, uh, you go to get your car service. There's so many opportunities that you'll see once you put a priority on reading to read in, in different environments or different page, different places, especially if it's on your phone. So those having it on my phone has been a huge um, key to me being able to read a lot. And so when I'm reading, when I'm really in, into a book, I can average 50 to 100 pages a day easily. If I, um, if I don't have any work going on or like there's a little vacation or on a weekend and I re- really don't have much I'm doing, I can sometimes get 150 to 200 pages a day. But, and the other thing about that is though, like that wasn't overnight. Like I feel like I had to, just like everything else in life, right? I had to train uh, to that point. Like I started reading a little, I really got into reading hardcore four or five years ago. I've always been into reading, but really four or five years ago, I'm just like, I, I made it a huge part of my life. And when I fly, now if I'm flying across country, I won't download a single movie. And there's a, I can read for an entire four or five hour flight. And, and again, it's just like, it's, it's just, uh, I've been conditioned to this point now where I, where I really enjoy it and frankly need it. And it, it helps me on so many levels to, to, to disconnect from real life and disconnect from work and family and everything else going on and just kind of be immersed in this other world that is uh, it's oftentimes very significant and powerful in its message. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's something that I found myself working towards. Really, if I'm being completely honest, because I have guests on that have written books, so it forced me to start uh-huh. reading a lot more. But I mean, what you said about stepping outside your comfort zone—that's what I've done with this this podcast too. Is you know, it's the if you look at the absolute core, it's first responders, and then outside of that, military, and then you know, civilians. But the the solutions, it might be you know, I've had child soldiers from Sierra Leone. I've had you know ballet dancers, I mean, all kinds of people, but it's amazing how these lines start to intersect on these, you know, human levels. And there's so much to learn from people way outside of our professions. Exactly. And on that note, it's so sad seeing what's happening in society with some of the division and people not wanting to talk to, or not having any tolerance for people of opposing views. And and that's, uh, it's tragic that it's going that direction. But But I think when you have people like us who aren't afraid to explore other ideas and the outer limits of thought, it's completely understandable and totally not. Hey, people having differing views is necessary for the world and society. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And they should be, it should be celebrated, not stifled or, or or censored or shut down. Absolutely. Well, one thing I've learned from this as well with the guests, I mean, you know, I don't agree with 100% of every single person that's come on. However, I've seen a tendency where a person can do 90, 95% right and everyone focuses on the 5% they got triggered by. And I'm not talking about uh, yeah. horrible people that are like, hey, I love everyone except, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, you know, that we all have, whether it's a rig- religious kind of bias or, you know, whatever it is, but there is this push to disregard all the good that someone's done in the world because they said something, offended someone, whatever. Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw that with Craig Glassman. I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, but it is a very important point, and you know, I've 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 watched with my own eyes the impact the CrossFed's had on my on my life. I see it all over the world. So when that. F- burn it all down thing happened to me i was like um are we are we are we kind of overreacting a little bit because all i've seen is is good things but uh yeah that's just my lens um all right well the same questions we have with the book what about a, a movie and or a documentary okay uh so in the last three or four years i really haven't watched a lot of movies because i read so much so i'm not current i would say on on most uh most of the movies of late i will say i'm a big fan of the star wars series so anytime a star wars movie comes out i'll, I'll take it in uh i was a huge fan of bruce lee so enter the dragon is a significant movie for me um huge fan of the rock obviously because of uh what that how that changed the career the path of my life and let's see what other movies um i think that that pretty much um uh, that's a good initial list without putting too much thought to it. In terms of documentaries, um, I, I'm big into sports documentaries. Obviously, our CrossFit Games movies, I like those. Um, but at this phase right now, I'm not I'm not doing a lot of docs either just because of uh, – like, uh, so time is precious and what you do with it is very valuable or and what you choose to do with it is uh, – is important. And so I just, at this stage of my life, last three, four, five years, I don't choose to spend much time watching movies. Uh, I'll, I'll do sports. I like watching football. Uh, I like watching basketball during the playoffs and the finals. And uh, I'm really into boxing. Some MMA fights I'll watch. But um, yeah, that pretty much sums that up. 
Beautiful. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I think someone like, so if you want to talk about like high level shooter, who was also a first responder, he was uh, in law enforcement, JJ Rikaza. He's one of the best shooters in the world uh, now, currently and great guy lives in Florida. Uh, Tony Blower. If you haven't had Tony Blower on the pod- podcast, highly recommend him. Super intelligent. Uh, and he's changed the landscape of, of combatives uh, to a degree that not many have. And, and super thoughtful and super insightful. Who else? Uh, if you want to go really outside your box and talk to someone who's, who has a lot of good thoughts on some of this uh, stuff around health and COVID, my good friend, Sevan Matosian, he's a, he's a Berkeleyite. <laughs> he doesn't live there anymore, but we, it's, it's amazing that we're, for, he worked for CrossFit for a very long time and we're really good friends, but he's uh, got powerful thoughts and opinions on things and um, really respectful of our community, really respectful of uh, the military and, and law enforcement and just a, an intelligent guy. He'd be someone that'd be fun to have on. And let's see who else. Um, yeah, when the timing when the time is right, and I don't know when that is going to be, but I hope it's sooner than later. You should have someone like Greg. You should have Greg Glassman on. Um, Greg Glassman. It was funny. Was, I did a podcast with someone, and they basically referred to like, "Oh, well, we can never have him on" or something like that. And I'm like, "Why not? If the fucking guy's not dead, <laughs> you know, like he's not he's not he's not in prison. He's not dead. He's done nothing wrong." Like. This whole note, this notion of, to me, of his existence almost being erased is so fucking weird. Now, I don't think he's ready, but there'll be a point when he is ready to do it. And, and like, he, I can't wait to see him come back and, you know, talk a little. Because uh, here's the thing about Greg. He's a fucking genius. And what he created has been, has changed the world uh, for the better, CrossFit. And, and it's, he's, he's a, um, He's a one-of-a-kind individual that we are lucky to have had create this program and, and create the movement that he did. So, you know, and just like everyone else, every individual is flawed and has their, their issues. And so, you know, no one ever said he was perfect. No one ever said I was perfect. Neither of us are claiming it. But uh, if you look at what he did and the body of work, what he contributed to so speaking, like when you talk about the community that you're talking to, that man has done so, and we talked about some of it, that man has done so much for these communities um, on so many levels. So you should have him on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I would love to. I've reached out to him before. We've got a mutual friend, TJ Cooper, one of the CrossFit OGs, who's a, you know, an incredible member of that community and also a retired SWAT officer. So, I mean, he, he walks the walk and is an amazing man. Yeah. Greg, Greg, uh, Greg loved TJ Cooper. Greg's known TJ way longer than he's known me. They were, they were really close. Um, and Greg really respects and loves everything about the military and uh, LEO and fire. He, he has, he's been one of the most generous people to that in that in these communities, if not, I've seen him be generous to multiple other communities that have kind of, it's kind of been forgotten or not highlighted at all through all of this. His generosity was, uh, was huge. 
Absolutely. Well, he's more than welcome on the show. I can't wait to to get him on. Now, just one other thing I forgot to t- to just uh, ask you about another community, and obviously it's completely entwined with with our professions because of the you know the the nature of the job is the adaptive community. So, I, am I right in understanding there's an adaptive um, portion to the games this year in the open? Yeah, we yeah in the open we added an adaptive division. So the adaptive community has been doing CrossFit for a very long time. And different events and competitions have been having adaptive divisions. At the CrossFit Games, we had a little adaptive um, uh, workouts that were kind of more demos than actual competition. And so this year, we decided to add it to the Open. What it looks like at the Games, we don't know yet. But the first step for us is huge. And it's a, it's a, it's a complex road to go down. And frankly, it wasn't a road we were ready to go down without that scene in CrossFit having developed and matured in terms of understanding what they wanted from us. What I mean by that is like years ago, people were saying, Hey, let's have adaptive stuff in the games. Okay. What's that look like? Well, I don't know. We'll just have an adaptive division. But the problem is there's so many different variants to what can go like what the uh, physical limitation is, right? Think of like lower leg amputee, upper leg amputee, um, arm amputee uh it just like there's a ton of different injuries that individuals can have and fundamentally at the crossfit games and in crossfit we're measuring fitness across equal cohorts and and there we didn't have we on our own didn't have the the division thing figured out so this year we decided to ask some of the experts in the crossfit community in that field alex zirkenbach Kevin Ogar and a handful of others, we asked, hey, well, what do you guys recommend? How about you guys get together and you figure it out and you tell us what it's going to look like? And they came back and said, hey, here's our plan. How about we have eight divisions? These are the divisions. We defined them. They created it. And so really the massive, the masters, or masters, I'm sorry, adaptive division have been, it's being driven by and created by those in that, um, in that division. And that's exciting. And that's the way it needed to happen. They needed to take the lead on it. The thing is, it took us a while to actually hand them that torch and let them do it. I think they would have been ready to do it a few years ago, but I don't, we weren't ready and we didn't, we didn't bring them in too. Beautiful. Well, it's very exciting. Actually, one of the seated female from, um, she was the top 10 in the wheel ward games, uh, is in my gym, Charlotte Merle Smith. So looking forward to seeing oh, how that cool. pans out. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress these days? Well, shoot. I, I spent every day I'm shooting. I shoot uh, 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 pistol, rifle, not really shotgun, but most of the shooting I'm doing. Well, I, I like to say this about the shooting I do. I don't shoot for fun, even though I'm de- decompressing. I'm training while I'm shooting. I'm shooting for an objective. I'm shooting to train for a hunt or to train for a competition. But I really, it is a form of decompressing for me because I really do enjoy the process and the journey of, of working on my gear and actually shooting and then reading. Um, so like I covered earlier, I like to read a lot. And then I also have to um, intertwine spending time with my family, which um, I need to spend, I need to get better at. But we've been you know, together. I feel like we've been together nonstop through all of this because of COVID. And yet, even in that, sometimes when I sit down and think, I'm still not there enough, interestingly, you know, because um, I have so much with work and some of the other 
the shooting stuff I do. Um, it seems sometimes I, I need to be able to just stop and not do things. And I need to be better at that and be there with my family and just like without anything happening. Beautiful. And I'm working on that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, then the last question then, if people want to find you online, reach out, learn more, where are the best places online? Uh, I think my Instagram account uh, at the Dave Castro is my big account, mainly CrossFit related, uh, 95%. Sometimes I'll post other things on there. But recently, probably last year, I created a hunting account. It's at TDC Hunts. And that's where I put all my shooting stuff, all my hunting stuff. Some of it will I'll sometimes cross over and put on my main account, but I couldn't, I had to create another account only because I couldn't see my main account having that volume, the actual amount of hunting and shooting content that I wanted to put out. So I created this separate account just for that. And every day there's a gun or a hunt or some competition I've done something on there. And uh, that's why I created the separate account just because, you know, it's dedicated to that where my main account has crosses over mainly to CrossFit and things related to that. Beautiful. Were you hunting before you entered the SEALs or was it something you found more recently? More recently, actually. I mean, I obviously have been in a train, shot a lot as a SEAL, got out. Then when I moved back up here to Northern California two or three years ago, um, we had a big pig problem and we have deer and we have turkey. And so I kind of, I, I shot, I know how to shoot. I knew, know a lot about that world. So I'm like, well, why am I not more into hunting? So I went on a hunt with a friend in Texas, enjoyed it, came back and said, all right, I'm going to start getting into this here. And so I've been hunting um, for the last couple of years a lot, and I really enjoy it. Brilliant. It's a nice, it's a nice outlet for the shooting. So again, like when I, I talk about training for shooting, I'm training for a competition. Now also I'm training for hunting. So it all crosses over seamlessly. And did you do any bow hunting at all? I've, I've seen the, the veteran community yeah. buy into that pretty well. Yeah, I've I done a little this year, this last year. I have a nice bow from Hoyt. Uh, I don't, I'm not as into it as shooting, but I've killed a, I killed a turkey last year. I killed a wild pig with the bow. So I've, I've done a few little hunts with it, but um, it's not like, here's the thing. It's just not as much of a passion to me as shooting. I know some people really get passionate about it, but that didn't hit for me. Brilliant. All right. Well, Dave, I just want to say thank you so much. I know how busy you are. I know the Open's about to unfold. So I'm truly honored that you carved some time for this conversation. But I know, you know, I know there's so many people listening that really have been affected by CrossFit. Like I said, I got into it in 2006. So 14 years, it absolutely changed my life and, you know, made me functional as a firefighter in my whole career. So just thank you for being so generous with your time and telling your story today. Thanks a lot. I appreciate uh, you having me on.